It's reading aloud. My name is Nate Cordry. I host the show. Sam Kiefer is with me as always. Hey, guys. He's got a cup of coffee and a styrofoam cup like it's 1987. What are you doing? Just get a mug, you weirdo. I am not doing well. <laughs> Speaking of not doing well, uh, I had a rough weekend, man. I had a very difficult weekend. I oh, had yeah. a, uh, yeah, I want to get into it a little bit because it's, because it relates to the podcast. I had issues that I thought I had, that I had completely, um, um, wrestled, uh, to the ground with like basic, like anxiety, like anxiety, low grade anxiety and panic disorder. And I used to have, have it a lot more intensely in my twenties and early thirties, went to therapy, did six years of terrific therapy and, and leveled it and got it out. Um, but the last couple of weeks, I just, I haven't been feeling great. And, uh, and this weekend sort of like came to a head and I felt myself bordering on like a panic attack and I was feeling really anxious. And I start, started to obsess in my head about some of the things like the way that it sort of, um, uh, it rears its head as in with like phobias. Oh, okay. And I had this, I had this like insane phobia that makes zero sense. And I just had it because it was something to, um, it was like something tangible to freak out about. When what I'm really freaking out about is is harder to pin my finger on. It's just like there's an imbalance in the brain. Anyway, um, one of the things that I learned about in therapy is is to take deep breaths, <laughs> know that you're not going to die, uh, that everything's going to be okay. And that um, your brain is just getting the better of you, but you can you can get it back on track if you do a couple of these yeah. like little handy tips. I, I had a very similar weekend. I also have uh, problems with anxiety. I moved apartments this weekend, oh. and one of my triggers is any sort of change, oh, even shit. if it's a positive change. Like I'm moving from an yeah. apartment I don't like to somewhere I do like, mm. but any sort of change, my brain is like will associate and be like, the place you're leaving, that's the last time you'll ever be happy. You're leaving something behind. So I just sat in my empty apartment, totally packed up, mm. uh, not leaving the room, Oof. just waiting to lock the door, yeah. being like, but I can't, because if I do, I'll never find anything happy again. The brain is just so spectacularly Weekends devious. Weekends are the best. <sighs> Man, I thought I'd gotten to a point in my life where like, I could enjoy weekends. Like in, in college, I hated weekends because uh -huh. I didn't like party with the fucking frat idiots. Like I just, that wasn't my scene. And so the weekends would come and I wouldn't have much to do. And all like, it was just like, oh, I just want to get to Monday. So I'm like in class and working and busy. This past weekend and the previous weekend were like that, where I was like, I have too much time on my hands and my brain is going to places where it shouldn't go and I'm freaking out. Mm -hmm. One of the tricks that I've used is to... Um, is to read certain things or listen to certain things or watch certain things that bring you comfort. And one of the tricks that I used way back when I had, when I first was dealing with this, I, I had a fear of flying. Really? And I was on a plane to Australia. It was a fucking 15 hour flight. And four or five hours into it, I was like, holy shit, I'm way too high in the air. This is too small. I can't breathe. Like, this I plane's just, too heavy. Yep. So I went to a podcast that I really loved and enjoyed that made me laugh to comfort me. And it worked. And it made me think about the podcast and the people on the podcast as opposed to the, an irrational fear I've built in my brain, a fear that is unwarranted. So this, yet last night, I did the same thing. I was freaking out in my apartment, my house. I was like by myself and I was feeling 
scared and worried. And I went back to this podcast. And it's the Ricky Gervais show. Have you ever listened yeah. to his show? The Ricky Gervais show, he did like three or four seasons. It's him and Steve Merchant and this guy, Carl Pilkington, who is their engineer. To me, it doesn't, it doesn't get better. It's the best. And you can have your own opinions about Ricky Gervais, and I get if people are turned off by him. I get it. But this is like genius. So I just want to play three minutes of it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this, is, this is what I went to, and it's, it still makes me laugh, and it's genius. Here it is. You're listening to Ricky Gervais with Steve Merchant and Carl Pilkington. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, now time for one of our regular features, Monkey News. Do the jingle. Oh, chimpanzee that monkey news. Right, what, what we're doing here is, right, is uh, just giving you a bit of, bit of monkey news that's, that's gone on, right, where a monkey's been involved in it. Good little story in that. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the one that went into space? The first, uh, the first sort of thing they ever sent up there before man did it and all that. You see, this is what annoys me with it, really. Armstrong gets all the, all the glory, but do you know who went up there before, before him? A monkey. Yeah. yeah. Dog but, went up first. But what was the monkey called? I don't know. No, sure, okay. So it's not the most informed news bulletin. The dog was called Laika. Was it? Yeah, they couldn't get it back there. They sent it up there, did a few tests and stuff, and they couldn't get it back. They weren't, they weren't prepared to bring the capsule back yet. Brilliant. We could all do that. So is that a, is that a, you know, is that a good mission? Well, I just think it was seeing what, if it, if, if the mission itself killed it, but they didn't have the technology, because of course it couldn't, it couldn't fly the capsule back, which it has to be manned to bring right, it. Right, well, this, this, was, this was the next one up then, right? So the dog must have gone first, and then they went, right, we made an error there, right? Get the monkey in. And what happened is they taught it um, what buttons to hit at the time that it needed to hit them. And, and the way they did this was, like, give it bananas. It was like, hit the red button, and it hit the red button, they'd give it a banana. Right. And they go, right, reverse is the green one, hit the green one. And then they do that and go, there's a banana. And then they go, right, hit reverse, and it go, and get a banana. Right. Hit the red, so it was taking commands on, like, headphones. Right, but how are they giving it the banana? Is that how you learn to do radio? <laughs> how are they giving it the banana? What do you mean? No, oh. this is before it went. You, don't, you oh, wouldn't right. just go and put a monkey in it and go, there you go, get on with it. They'd sort of put him in one of them capsules that you get. Yeah. And with, uh, on headphones. I, I don't believe this happened. Well, I'm telling you the story now, so the monkey I don't sat think they trained it to do anything. I think they sent it up there and he put electrodes coming out of it to no, see what... what uh, it wasn't any of that. They did a thing like they do. Like, right. like they can with animals. If you give something, uh, you know, like a treat, you can teach it how to do it. It's just like a dog, isn't it? When it's you... called Pavlovian conditioning. However, that was to see if it would salivate or go over to no, a particular it, corner, yeah. not if it could control a spacecraft. Next one up. It's the next one up. It, as far as the, the monkey's not sat there going, oh, I'm a bit under pressure here, it's a rocket. All that's knowing is, I'm getting a banana if I hit that button. That's all the monkey's thinking about. Right? <laughs> they wouldn't, but billions well, of space but dollars. But how can they be sure that it's going to press the button at the right moment? Because it's got headphones on. <laughs> They're telling it. It's not like just, you have now. It's not like willy-nilly. It's not just like pop it in there and see that. What's to stop it from just hitting it any old time? Because it's a monkey and it's, it's not a human. Because it's trained now. But oh, anyway, it's trained. So it's listen, fully trained. Yeah, go so on. So what happened is, anyway... Oh, this is absolute rubbish. They pop the monkey in there. Yeah. It's got its headphones on. They're going, right... Hit the green one, and uh, I think there's something there that 
a little banana comes out to keep the same. <laughs> no, you're making this up. I'm not. It's the same. There's no way that they made uh, uh, a right, spacecraft so, so can, that had a banana dispenser. <laughs> right, There's so, no way in this world that they made a spacecraft that could go into outer mm, space, right? So what? So man so by a monkey mm, with a banana dispenser. So you're saying that it's easy to send something up to space, but you don't believe there's a little banana machine. Right, okay, See? so in your world, in your world, uh, there's this, there's a monkey and it's been conditioned and so there's a little monkey dispenser, a mon uh, sorry, monkey dispenser or a yeah, banana, dispenser, banana dispenser, yeah. right, so it comes to the launch day, monkeys, monkeys sat in there, uh, everyone's ready, bananas are stocked up and all the rest of it, they go, right, hit the green button. <laughs> Right, and the rocket goes off and what have you. No, they would not make the monkey launch the rocket. Carl, so, you are you are living in a, so, a cartoon world. So the rocket goes off, right? <laughs> this is absolute bollocks! It's all going well. You are, you, I mean, I don't know it's what all, you're going to... It's, it's not going well. Going There's well. no way a monkey launched it's a going... rocket. There's no way a monkey launched a rocket, so you idiot. it's all going on, so they're going, hit the left button, and, it's, and it goes a little the bit left. left button? Right, oh, so... well-known spacecraft command. This is Houston. Hit the left button. Oh, brilliant. This is what happened in Bono 13. Hit the left button. So it, you yeah, are, oh, it you goes are. left. Yeah, it goes left. So it goes left, and it's, it's going away. Left! It's, it's it goes going left! Yeah. <laughs> no, the moon! So You're going goes, right! It goes, it goes for the moon, everything, everything's going well. Right. Uh, they get up there, but it does whatever it does. It reverse, it comes back. <laughs> right? So then... You are, so, honestly, you are brain dead. So it's you are one of the most stupid people. That I would rather have mm -hmm. the monkey drive right, me home than you. So the thing is, so it lands back, yeah. it does a good job and everything, it gets out. Um, and this it's is this is, bananas. this is where this is where it turns a bit sad because after it done that mission, yeah. right? Because it happened and it, and it was all safe and everything. The next one would have been to send man, right? So the monkey enjoyed it and it was like, well, I want to do it again, right? But they were like, so how did they know that? How did they know? Just, what just the way it looked and what have you. It was <laughs> like, <laughs> fuck off! <laughs> just the way it looked. So, you, are, you are a maniac. So the thing is, though, right? So after it had done that, it was on such a high, right? <laughs> yeah. It could it could never get that high again. Change there was drugs. nothing. There was nothing that it could do. Went on tour, did it? It did. It, it sort of ended up killing itself <laughs> because it could never never get that buzz that it right, got. Right. That was absolute bollocks. None of that is true. <laughs> except they sent a monkey into space, and I'll and I'll, mm. I'll check that. Absolute dribble. Uh, there it is. That's, that's the so good. That's the Ricky Gervais show. You can find it online right now. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, it's better than any other comedy. I mean, it's like the foundation of the comedy podcast, and it's fucking great. You can listen to anyway. I've, I, 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 most of you have probably already listened to it, but if you hadn't, get into it because he's fucking. He's just the best. I did a really small part in a movie that he directed years ago and I got to do a scene with him and it was after I'd listened to all this and I watched the and I was like obsessed with him and he was just as cool and hilarious as you would imagine he would be um so thank you thank you Ricky Gervais for um helping me get out of my um anxiety and panic last night podcasts are powerful anyway let's get on to the show I have a great guest we got two things being read and make sure you come out to the LA Times Festival of Books on Saturday, April 9th, 4 p.m., live podcast. I'll be there. Cool, creative people will be there. Make it happen. Okay, let's get to, let's get to the interview.
This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than 20 bucks a month, you get four to eight items that include gear, licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. And make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash Nate, enter code Nate, and save three bucks on any new subscription. It's more than just a subscription service. It's, it's an entire community of fans that share their experience and interact with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. And they guarantee 40 bucks in value every month in their crate. And you're only paying 20 So, I mean, come on, that's great. Every month has a different theme, and all themes are curated around that theme. So, uh, they've had Star Wars themes and Marvel, Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, many more. And spring, spring is springing, so grab a map, your bag of holding, and some friends. April's theme is Quest. We're forming a party to explore everywhere from far-off kingdoms to worlds hidden within worlds with exclusive items from Labyrinth, Harry Potter, History Channel's Vikings, and Uncharted 4, and of course got our t-shirt and loot pin to help equip you for your adventures and remember you only have until the 19th of every month at 9 p.m pacific to subscribe and after that you're screwed so make sure you get in by the 19th so go to lootcrate.com slash nate that's lootcrate.com slash nate enter code nate and save three bucks today noah bean is here hi Hey, it, this I I'm, I have to say um, I brought you here to read something. Yes, um, but I also wanted to chat with you a bit about like career and shit because yeah. it's because uh, you've had a compelling one and it's worth talking about. And we've known each other, yeah, for quite a while. Well, that makes me um, that brings a little. I was writing, I was like preparing for this last night, and it makes me a little uncomfortable because I'm so used to interviewing strangers. Where there is no, there's no history. There's no pressure. Yeah, there we meet for forty minutes and then they're gone. Yeah, they're, we're never again in each other's lives. Yeah, and so I feel a little more emboldened to like ask hard questions because there's there's less risk. Like if a stranger's like, that's a fucking invasive question. It ma- it makes me uneasy, but not as uneasy as it would like a dear friend. Well, now I'm getting really nervous because I feel like you're gonna get. You're going in deep. Way deep. Yeah. No, all this is very surface. But um, but I am like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I'm anxious. That's it's, it's strange. Well, you know, the thing... Because there's, there's value to our relationship, and I wouldn't... Not that I'm going to ask any weird shit, but, but... Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. The thing that you're going to ask me to read in a little bit... Yeah. Actually, when I, when I opened that file up this, this weekend... Yeah. I kind of thought... Is this going to be an intervention? Because I'm about to get married. But you get to the end of that piece. Yes. Okay, but there, you, you have to so take a couple of. I was there, this was not totally a random choice. <laughs> no, of not essays. at all. No, not I at realized, all. Yes, I read that. I, and I was like, I, I want no on the show, and this is this is a piece about love and marriage, and he's about to get he, uh, he's engaged. He's about to get married. So this is like, I feel like this fits. This does. Yeah. Um, because it does say like it's hard, but it, but it whatever we'll get we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get that. Noah Bean is here. Um, he is a prog graduate of the Boston University. I'm reading like your bio off of my computer right now. Does that make you uncomfortable? Yeah. Um, uh, he earned his BFA at BU. Serious program. 
Oh yeah. I did. Yeah. I I grew up 15 miles from there and I had no idea. Really? No idea. I knew Emerson. Yeah. But I had no idea the BU had this like badass fucking undergrad program. Where yeah, that's the it was a conservatory. Yeah. You know. I don't I'm surprised you didn't even think about going there. Didn't even know. I I, I had so many friends who went to BU too like to study other shit, but I I had no idea that they had a huge arts program cuz yeah. I didn't like my school was not, you know, no one was going to be a musician or an actor or performer. So I think the, um, what are the people who, the, who advise you on where to go to your college advisor? Yeah, yeah, people? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they didn't bring it up because <laughs> they're just like, they're like, uh, yeah, Emerson's the only one. Like, huh? No, there are other opportunities here, man. I, it was a good school. Yeah. I had a great, great. Boston and I love, I was born in Boston. But then yeah. quickly shuffled off down to Connecticut and was raised there. But Boston was such a great college town, too. Yeah. And a good, I mean, that's sort of where I, you know, sort of started learning about art and stuff like that. Yeah. As well as college stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. When you say art, you mean like like music and culture and, and like, or like art art, like prop, like MF, go to going to the MFA and seeing art. Well, all that, and but also showing up and going into a you know going into a BFA program, learning for the first. You know, I was doing plays in high school and stuff like that, yeah. and like you probably were. But then I showed up at this conservatory, <laughs> and it was just like I had no idea that the, that it was so the, that you could really study this. Yeah, and that it was a profession. Yeah, and that you know it's it's like trade school. I mean, you're going in there, and you're ninety percent of your time is spent in the study of theater, whether that be like, you know, physical, but then also the literature going back and learning about the Greeks and all that stuff, you know, stuff that we never really use in our yeah. career, but it's yeah. amazing. You know, it's going back and studying the the classics and getting into Shakespeare and all that stuff. So I was kind of like a, a total theater nerd during uh, my time in Boston, but loved it. Were you a theater nerd in high school? Uh, or did you like, a little bit. I was into the sports, but then that you play soccer or something, or soccer, lacrosse. Yeah, yeah you know, very Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whitest sports. Totally. Um, though soccer is a very diverse sport if you go outside of New England, but not so much in New England. Yeah, a lot of white faces. What else does it say about me on that computer of yours? Uh, let's see here. Um, it, it, things that I well, we'll get to it, but things that I'm like. So you went so BU. Um, you shine there. You have like great success there. Did okay. Did okay. And you get like agent interest after that because of a, did you guys have a showcase kind of thing? Yeah. Is it in Boston or in New York? We did three. We did one in Boston. Damn. Uh, we did one in New York and then we came out and did LA. Wow. Yeah. Holy Which shit. I don't think they do anymore. I yeah. think it's, I think it's limited to just New York, I think. Okay. But it was, uh, yeah, it was great. Um, it was hard though. I mean, that's definitely. It was like getting shot out of a cannon. Yeah, I bet. Of, all of a sudden, you realize that this, you know, you're you're trying to become a professional actor, and and it was hard. You know, we graduated with just 19 kids in our class, and mm. not everybody got an agent. Not yeah. everybody, you know, right, did really well in the showcase, and uh, so that was kind of a hard, uh, hard reality. Do you remember what pieces you did for the showcase? Uh, yeah, I did a piece. From the invention of love. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With a guy named Matt Wilkes, who you oh, know. Yep. Um, sweetie, <laughs> sweetie Matt Wilkes. Sweetie, sweetie Matt. 
and then I did a piece from the film Circle of Friends. Oh my God! Yeah, Mini Driver and uh, <laughs> Chris. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Chris. What's his name? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which we kind of felt like that's going to show my sensitive side. You know, the like <laughs> the nice, the romantic lead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then I think I did a third piece with. Faye Wolf, who's been on this podcast. Yes. Dear friend of yours. And, and yours. And who graduated with me. Yeah. Uh, and I cannot remember what that is. She'll she'll remind me after this okay. podcast. Okay, we'll call her. But uh, yeah, those were the, th- I think those were the three. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it was ridiculous. And did I you mean, get, like, did, did agents call that evening or was it like the next day, like your phone started to ring? We got a sheet. Uh, mm. The, oh God! That night. Ooh, that's scary. Uh, yeah, the like director of the program came. We'd all meet at like a bar. Oh God! And everybody's sitting there. Oh Jesus! And they hand out. Oh this my God! Sheet of paper that says everybody who came, all the agents, <laughs> managers, casting directors, and then it gives you. There was like three little boxes, and it would there could be a check mark in any of them that would one would be they requested your headshot and resume, and then the next was. Shit. They requested, I think, like a phone call. They want you to call them to set up a meeting. Okay. Um, That's the big one. That was the big one. Yeah. And, yeah, so it was terrible. So we're all sitting in That's there. That's not and something like, you do as a group. No. And then it turned That's something you terrible, email that shit, you fucking. Yeah. Jesus. It was, and there's no support anymore at this point. Oh. We're, like, done. And everybody's, like, devastated. <laughs> and it's dramatic. And it's terrible. Oh, it was in a bar? Yeah. So the people were just like, oh, all right, shot a fucking Jameson. Let's get this over with. We weren't even, like, most of us were still not even of drinking age, I think. You know, I mean, half of the hadn't even turned 21 because we're graduating. Wowee. Some of the kids probably had. I I don't even remember. Do you have a memory of that night of him or her coming up to you and handing you the piece of paper? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was very, I mean, it was, it was big. And, you know, we had built it up that this was it. This was, this For four years, basically, you're talking about this. (laughs) Fuck! <laughs> yeah, it was pretty rough. Oh, wow. Um, which, but your paper had some names on it. I had a couple names, yeah. So I ended up getting uh, getting agents out of that. Um, but yeah, it was terrible. And then it was just like, hey, so welcome, fucking- to, welcome to the business. Here you <laughs> yeah, go. that's hard fucking core. Yeah. Um, but from there, you head to, the next summer, you head to Williamstown, right? Yeah, that was, that, that was a really lucky... Amazing thing because I didn't know Williamstown. This is Williamstown Theater Festival in Williamstown, Massachusetts, um, and that kind of happened out of the blue. They had a some deal with BU, and they they grabbed a couple of us and and sent us there for the summer. Yeah, uh, which is where I met you. Yes, that's where we met. Yeah, it was summer of two thousand. Summer two thousand. Uh, we were in the same company. It was called the Act One Company, which was a small group of eleven or 12 actors, and they only worked as an ensemble the entire... We didn't do any parts in the main stage or the second stage. We didn't do our own shit, our, like, late-night shows. We just did two plays. We spent the entire summer working as an ensemble, creating two two productions, and that was it. So we were very insular. We didn't, we didn't uh, interact much with anyone else in the festival. We would, like, when we go to parties and Crea- yeah. chase girls. Socially, but- we were... Trying to interact as much as we possibly yes. could. Yeah, going to the bar yeah. every every night. Every night. Um, and trying to 
trying to have a cool experience. Right. Um, but that's where you and I met. And that was a, that was a, like a, that was huge. That was probably it's a very special summer. Yeah. And probably the most influential experience mm. I've had. Mm. And I think for most people, I mean, I mean, Williamstown's become this sort of cult that it is everybody who goes there, you know, you're, you're, you're devoted to it for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And always trying to get back there and, you know, Absolutely. We're probably, yeah, we're reading scripts right now to try to get yep. back there this yeah. summer. Uh, 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 there's one. Uh, my agent said there was one. There, um, um, the Wendy Wasserstein yes. play. Yeah. I yeah. got it in my game on. Game on, See, <laughs> game on brother. It. We're back to Let's that. Fucking I'm, I'm be bar after. Give me the piece yeah. of paper, Sam. Who has the part? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's a magical place. I mean, they used to call it sex camp, like in the 70s. Yeah. You know, like it's a fucking, it's, you get to go there. It's bucolic and beautiful. And you're working with the best, like people in the theater business uh, in the universe. And it's beautiful weather and they have big budgets and they have the best of everything and you're working with the best actors, directors, designers and then you're hanging out at night and sort of celebrating your life as a fuck, like we won. You yeah. won the fucking lottery that we're here. You know, it's just like a five week reminder that we're actors. Yeah. Because here in this town, it's, it just, you know, drains sort of the life out of you, I think. It does does for me at times. Yeah. Um, but we, you wouldn't know much about that because you've been living in New York. I've been almost. I mean, besides going off for work in other towns, but you've been in New York for like fifteen years. Yeah, and I've stuck it out. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I come back and forth. I've been doing. I've been, you know, doing the occasional pilot season out here. I've been, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm now engaged to a woman who lives out here, so yeah. I'm uh, spending more time out here. But yeah, I've always kind of kept my home base and. In New York, yeah, which uh, which is tough. Sometimes I feel like everybody in New York thinks I live in L.A., and everybody in L.A. thinks I live in New York. You know? Yeah. But um, so it's uh, yeah, it's been. I, I don't know. I just can't. You know, I I, I I like L.A. I know you're not supposed to if you live in New York. You know, but L.A.'s great. Yeah. And actually, I think I was just talking to somebody. I went out to the Malibu Playhouse last night. Oh wow! Uh, to Daria Politan had a, a yeah. play reading out there, and. Um, we were talking about LA theater and I've been hanging out with this, this group. I am a theater company, them. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of really cool stuff going on here. Yeah. In the, in the kind of the off, off version of yes. LA theater. Yes. Um, it does like really seek it out. Yeah. New York, it falls into your lap. Yeah. But I think New York's getting harder because New York's getting so expensive. Everybody's getting priced out of New York. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that including, you know, not just people, but also theater companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can't have a home in New York City anymore. No. It's too much. No. Um, we spent another summer together the following summer in 2001. Yeah. Um, at Williamstown, part of the non-equity company, which was where you, it's another great summer, where you play small parts in the main stage and the second stage, play small roles, kind of walk on stuff so you can, so they can cast it's a way that they can have like they can do a play with thirty people in it and not have to pay twenty of them, yeah. um, and uh, and then we did uh, like directing projects like at night, which was great fun. Everyone came to those, but that was the summer where we did this play called um, uh, uh, Philadelphia Here, Here I, I Come, come. Yeah. which is a Brian Friel play. Yeah, it was the last play of the summer. Yeah, and. Um, What's, what's the play about? 
Uh, it is about a young Irish northern a guy who lives in a small, I think Donegal or something, uh, the small town in Northern Ireland, and it's his last night before he leaves to go make his fortunes in America. He's going to move to Philadelphia. And it's 1968-ish, something like that, late yeah. 60s. And so it's uh, all these people from his life, his friends, the the priest, everybody in town kind of comes to say goodbye to mm. this guy. Mm. But it's structured in this really interesting way that there is the main character, Gareth. He is... Gareth. Gareth. He has uh, two – he has the private and the public persona. So there's two actors that play this one guy and there's the public, which everybody's interacting with, and then there's private, which is his id, his yeah. his interior monologue right. that is always kind of antagonizing him throughout this, you know, this epic play. It's a long play. There's two intermissions to that play. And um, God, there is. Yeah, I forgot about that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's this beautiful uh, kind of heartbreaking story about uh, – I mean, a, it's a big thing. It's a father and son yes. play. Yes, um, You know, and it's a lot about becoming becoming a, a man or, yeah. you know, and, and finding your own way. Um, but, yeah, we did that uh, together. That, that play is so beautiful. I didn't know it when I read it. And then I saw it. <laughs> like, yeah. I would – I mean, I would, I was on stage briefly with you and then – for one scene, and then I would go off stage, and I'd watch the. I would always watch the last, um, the last like 30, 25 minutes when it's it's the end of the day, and he's saying his final goodbyes, and his last goodbyes with his dad, who he has a fraught relationship with, and um, and then he says goodbye to sort of like the maid, which is it's just a heart- devastating play. It's yeah. devastating. Yeah, beautiful. and beautiful. Beautiful, and my that was the first time, like the second or third time in my life that I saw my father cry. Wow! It was after that production. Came backstage, no, like met at the stage door or whatever, and I was hugging him, and he just—I forget what he was—he said he was laughing because I think he was embarrassed that he that he like had had cried, but it it just moved me so much. I was like, he got it. He got this play. He totally Mm. got what what the story that we were trying to tell. Yeah. And I've loved that. Mm. Pl- I love that play so deeply. When I was in Ireland, I went with Ire- like to Ireland with uh, Johnny Forrest a couple mm. years ago. Yeah, and I got a first edition copy of that wow. at like a, at a rare bookstore in Dublin, and I like cherish it because I just love that play so much. It's so beautiful. But something crazy happened. Um, you and I and Nate Mooney, yeah, and um, uh, Alex Cranmer, yeah. Okay. Wow. The f- yeah, wow. Just pulled that out of my ass. The four of us played here, like Gar's buddies yeah. who were saying goodbye. Like a 10-page scene. You just come in. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, have a great yeah. time. Yeah, get your blood up. Let's go to the And so it was great fun. Um, uh, the guy who played um, Gar. Um, wow, we don't, yeah. You, I'm forgetting his fucking name. Austin Lissy. Austin Lissy. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. He was, yeah. Oh my God. So Austin Lissy plays. Great actor. Great actor and great guy, sweetheart. Austin yeah. Lissy played Gar and then private Gar was Lee Pace. And, um, and we we're at the final, the very final run through before we go to do, to do the play. Right. And um, uh, you remember this, right? 
<laughs> I don't tell this story that much, but how come? Well, I well, you continue, and then I'll, I'm going to interject a Great. little bit. Yeah. So we get to the very, very final run where the head of the theater comes in and all our designers, and it's like this is the last time we do it before we get into the theater. So everyone shows up. The we did the run, and the head of the theater, Michael Ritchie, decides that he doesn't want the doesn't want Lee, Lee Pace to continue playing private. Rehearsal is over. Like there is gonna, it's Sunday night. People are gonna be in the theater on Wednesday, so it's a it's a little late to make a change. Yeah. But Michael Ritchie says it's not working for some reason. I don't. I don't. I don't see uh, Lee uh, in this role, and so I'm I'm gonna fire him. I'm gonna buy him a ticket, and he's gonna go back to New York. So we're in we're in this rehearsal. It's in the base of a church. You're laughing. It's okay to talk about this. And, yeah. it's, and, and, and then the play is over. <clears throat> and then like the whole creative team like has this big, they're like, uh, go outside, guys. We'll call you back in a second. And we're like, what the fuck's going on? And then Lee comes out. I've, I've been fired. I've been fired. Yeah. Holy, f- what? Holy shit. Came out of fucking nowhere. And so take it from there. <laughs> What happens next? Well, I will say, I mean, yes, this was a, it was pretty intense. I mean, so and, and still is something that I've never actually experienced in, in any production. It doesn't sense. happen. It doesn't it's, happen. It's very rare. Uh, and I, you know, I, I would say that I've, I don't normally actually say who the people are involved in this story just because it's still, it's like something that I haven't always, but we, the nice thing about, you know, I don't always say that, you know, Lee got fired. But right. um, we can rest assured that Lee Pace is doing completely fine oh. and everything has worked out for them. You everything know, is, is cool. This is not a bad story about no. a poor no. actor who got— This is probably like the thing that triggered him like, I'm going to fucking yeah. take over. <laughs> I'm going to never stop working and yeah. dominate television stage and screen. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. And then just exploded into a huge fucking star. <laughs> yeah. And that's why that's why I think it's okay to sort of tell yeah. the story because he wins of, in of the end. Anybody, of anybody involved in this story. He Pace is the winner. He's won. He won. <laughs> he won. Yeah, it's true. So, yeah, he'd appreciate this. Lee, we love you. You're doing great. Mm. Please. But yeah, it was crazy. And then, and it wasn't, we were in that parking lot and all of a sudden it happened out of nowhere. Lee walks by us. He says, I just got fucking fired. Oh my God. And then I remember our stage manager came over to me, maybe to all of us, I guess we were hanging out there and said, no, uh, Michael Ritchie, the, the producer of Williamstown wants to see you in his office in five minutes. And I all of a sudden said, I'm getting fired. I'm not even in this play. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing. I, I'm in this play for ten minutes. How can I get fired? Why he's fucking fired yeah. everybody? What the hell? It's a bloodbath over here. What are we doing? I love that. That's your initial reaction. Yeah, I, panic. I was like, oh my god. I don't even. I, what? I don't even have a line basically in this play. So, anyways, go over there. Oh my into, god. Everybody's on lunch, and Michael's in his office, and I, you know, I sheepishly knock on the door. <laughs> You know, he says, come on in. And he, I, just, I remember he was sitting behind his desk. And, you know, and he's a very, he's a, he's a magnetic guy. Yes. You know, he's, I remember he used to, like, smoke his cigars in the back of the theater. At least that was my memory. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's a wonderful, great guy. And still an amazing producer. Great producer. the Center Theater Group yeah, in yeah. L.A. And, yeah. He's a fucking rock star. 
So he looks at me when I walk in the door and he says, take a seat, kid. And he says, listen, I had to make a very difficult decision. Let me go. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. You're going to play this part. And, you know, it was three days before the... It was, like you said, it was our last rehearsal, I think. I mean, it yeah. was our... We, we're going in the That theater. was it. That it was, was it. Like, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just kind of pan... And he said, go take a walk, come back. I'm going to give a speech when we, everybody comes back from lunch. And I'm just like, my heart just starts racing. And I'm like, you know, t- starting... The panic is starting. Because this is like a three-hour play. And I remember we went back into that room and everybody gathers and, like, everybody's, you know, the word is out. Everybody's starting to, like freak out yep and i remember michael gave up and he got up in front of everybody and and it's a pretty big company and uh of actors yeah and he gave the speech and said what was happening he said and i'm i'm gonna have noah take over the the role of private and i remember the guy who's playing the priest nesbitt blysdale yes oh my god stood up and because we had only come in for our one little 10 page scene yeah yeah he stood up and he goes who the hell is noah he didn't even know who I was. Oh my god! We had been in the rehearsal I forgot for about like this. Two and a half weeks, three weeks. Yes, and he didn't even know who I was. That I was in the company. Um, oh my god! And then they just handed me a clean script, and we started from the top. And uh, yeah, it was terrifying, but um, it sort of worked out. Oh, it worked out. I mean, it, brilliantly. It was did. like, and it was probably the greatest lesson in acting that I've ever had because, you know, it was impossible. It was an impossible feat to do. It was just too much. Um, but the only, there was, you know, I mean, there was the choice of either completely just panicking, jumping. I mean, I was thinking I should, I got to walk in front of a car. If I, if I break my leg, I don't have to do this. And nobody's going to be like upset because it will, I'll just say it was a terrible accident and you know, I couldn't do it. Obviously, I didn't do that. And no. you realize, like, all you, you, you just have to jump. You're standing at the edge of the cliff, and you have to jump. And a great little moment, I remember it was before the first preview. And I remember being backstage, and the Michael gave a speech before those first couple previews, kind of saying what was going on because, you know, it was – nerve-wracking and they had made these little journals for me so that some of it was on I don't know if you remember that yeah oh yeah I remember you having it in your head but it kind of incorporated well into the play because I was like the you know the interior monologue of him and I remember being backstage and the lights went down and Michael had just given his speech and the the little Irish diddly music starts and you know this was the first I'd never been in like an equity play before this was it I was terrified and there's about the there's probably about three or four or five minutes when the play starts before this character enters and i remember hearing the play start and just feeling like fuck there what do i do i can't do this but it's like the train has left the station and there was another actor in it this guy named munson hicks this great boston actor great actor and he was floating around in the in the dark in this in this stage right wing and i remember just standing there kind of just shaking waiting feeling the clock ticking until i had to take that first step out and he came up to me and it sounds like it 
in my, it made perfect sense to me what he said, but what he, he knelt down and he whispered in my ear, don't fuck up. And it sounds strange, but what I took from it was that you, I, I, I'm totally, I'm free. Yeah. There's no way. There's, yeah. That I, you can't lose. I can't lose. Yeah. Yeah. He was just basically just saying, take that first step and that's all you got to do. That's the hard, the hardest thing that you're going to have to do is take that first step. And once you do that, just go trust your instincts. You did the work. Everybody here is going to support you. And what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's a lesson that like, I always try to remind myself every time we step out there, whatever it is that, that just that first step is going to be the hardest. And, and if, as long as you put the time in and and you give it everything you can, you're not going to fuck up. Do you you remember, do you remember that, that ovation you got when you stepped out the first time? Well, yeah. And that was, that was amazing. I was part of it. it. I was out there. We, we all, the whole cast that that weren't on for a while, we went to the back and watched from the back. Yeah. And I took the first step and then the whole audience just started just applauding. It was, yeah, it was amazing. It was one of those moments in the theater that like just doesn't, it doesn't happen too often. Yeah. And when it does, like everyone knows what's going on and everyone is on the same page and, and everyone was just like, like you came out and everyone would just like filled your sail. Yeah. It's like, brother, let's fucking tell this story and we are on your side. Yeah. And and you had to we had to you had to hold. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was amazing. Yeah. It was really And you had to enter singing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Totally. Fuck, yeah, it was pretty it was pretty cool. Um Yeah. Amazing. I still think about that that experience and like what happened. It just was so and I'm so glad that it still informs you in a positive way. Like today, when you're when you're when you're working today, that still is something that maybe not every time you step in front of a camera or on the stage when you do a play, but it's part of your it's part of your uh, toolbox. Totally, totally. Fucking a, dude. Yeah, Amazing. and what we're capable of, even with very yes. Like I just did this. Um, I directed a little uh, a one act for this. I am a. They do a 24 hour play festival. Yeah. And I directed one of them. And, you know, it's the thing that you, you meet the night before and then the writer goes off and has to write a play and, you know, overnight and then give you the play at seven in the morning and then you start rehearsing at nine in the morning and then you're teching at 4.30 in the afternoon and show's on at seven. And, of course, you know, doing this, I kept thinking about that, about Philadelphia I Come and, and that reminder of that we are capable of doing inc- incredible things that we – don't even imagine that we're, you know, you feel like you don't have enough time, you don't, you're not prepared enough. But if, if you're up against the wall, it's amazing what we can do. Yeah. You so. just have to get out of your own way sometimes. Take I guess. that first step. Yeah. yeah. Well said, dude. Um, nice. Wow. I mean, this is good. Wonderful. Is there more? Should we wrap it up there? <laughs> no. Well, I want to, I mean, I listen. So I brought you here to read something. Yeah. So we'll get to that. But I wanted to, it's a piece about, <clears throat> I chose this piece because I thought it was appropriate. It's a piece about um, a marriage and uh, in the the singular sort of specialness and weight and substance of a marriage and its importance. Um, because you recently got engaged. Yeah. Uh, Christmas? Thanks. Christmas? Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Yeah. How did it happen? Uh, well, it, uh, I met a girl 
Yeah, let's go okay. back. Let's, let's go skip, back. Let's skip forward. Yeah. No, uh, no. Let's, uh, no. So you met you met Lindsay on on Nikita. Yes, we had right? uh, what is popularly known as a showmance. Yeah. So when you met her, excuse me, you're in Toronto. Yep. Did were you with someone at the time? Uh, no. Was she? Uh, yeah. And were you? Did your characters? I haven't seen the show, but do yeah. your characters interact? Yes, but not in a in a romantic not way. Not in any kind of romantic way. So. Tell me, like, how this relationship progressed to the point of, honestly, because I'm looking, like, I'm proud of you, and <laughs> I want to learn how to do this. <laughs> so, um, Relationship so advice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, no, it, you know, we didn't, uh, it took a while. I, that yeah. show was four seasons. I didn't do the whole, I came in, like, kind of halfway through. But, um, you know, it kind of evolved in uh, just which is what can happen when you're on location shooting something. You're, you're away for a very long time. Yep, and, you're in a little uh, bubble. Yeah, you're in a little bubble of whatever. And yep. Loneliness or yep. whatever. Totally. And uh, so we kind of very organically started a, uh, a friendship yeah. that, that turned into a, a romance. Um, do you remember the first time you guys hung out like outside the set like as friends? Like, hey, do you want to go – to see a uh, museum or something? It was, uh, well, first I think was all uh, like group stuff. Yeah, yeah. Go out, you know, the cast would go out or hang out, go to dinners yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Go to somebody's house, there was parties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had our first date at a French restaurant, um, Les Soleil up there. Okay. And uh, which which went well. And Were you was, nervous? Um, a little bit. I think it wasn't... Uh, yeah, I, I, but no, it was pretty. I think we very early on kind of had a, mm. a natural kind of, you know, back and forth. We found it easy to talk to each other. Of course, you know, I think we, it started talking about like the show and yeah, of course. You know, so you, which just happens when you're in a play yeah. with somebody or a movie or a TV show, you can just you got shit to talk about. Sure, because, do yeah, yeah. And so it started with a lot of that <laughs> bullshit, just you know, uh, showmances talking about the show or whatever, and yeah. then. Kind of evolved, and we had a hiatus, and um, started kind of just kept talking during the outside of the bubble of the show, and um, that's when it got a little bit more serious, and you know we started uh, spending time together in the real world in New York or L.A., um, and then uh, we actually shared a place in the final season. In uh, the, the we rented a house together. Yeah. Um, so, and then from there, it, you know, yeah, that, that was it. That was it. Um, when you first went on that date and sort of changed your relationship from friendship and coworker to like romantic relationship, were you nervous? Like, fuck, if this doesn't work out, I still oh, have to work with this person. Yeah. Well, I, yes, of course. I yeah. mean, uh, yeah, I was aware of that. And I think I had always said that I had a rule as everybody, you know, oh, I'm not going to date any actresses or especially nobody you're working with. Of course. That's bad. You know, don't shit where you eat and the whole thing. Um, but then as soon as I felt like she liked me, that went out the window, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, what? It's not, you know, I think it's good. This is as different. As, yeah, we can. This is different. No, we're professionals and yeah. we can make this work. And so I'm sure, it, you know, it could have gone sour. And I think we've all probably been in situations where some other people are, yeah. Yes. Or ourselves have created some sticky situations. Yeah. 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 Sure yeah. have. <laughs> um, 
But uh, yeah, for whatever, maybe we, you know, it was towards the end of the series. So yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe we lucked out. But um, yeah, it was, and you worry like people are talking and stuff like that. And yeah. And I, and I'm, you know, a fairly, I'm more kind of private in many ways, maybe than she is. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so there was a little bit of danger, but uh, we figured it out, you know? You figured it out. Yeah. And you lived together in Toronto, and then she came back to L.A., you were in New York, and We've you been, just maintained this relationship for, how long have you been together? Like uh, four years now. Wow. So long distance, and then finally this Christmas Day, I was doing a play in New York at Playwrights Horizons, and uh, I had a couple days off and took her up to uh, Western Massachusetts, actually to my father's house, and, um, and brought her out to uh, a little a bridge that was uh, kind of a, a very beautiful, this beautiful uh, beautiful old 150 year old trestle bridge wow. um, that was kind of important to me in some ways and um, yeah I mean it was oh, great. you know I mean sort of sappy and stuff like that I, I read her a poem great. and uh, and then just started complimenting her like crazy and heart started beating and finally got down on my knee and, and did it and uh, you know it's another thing man it, go back to Philadelphia I come you know it was like you, you you put a lot of weight and um, pressure on this moment of when you're going to couple with somebody, you know, that you're making this decision to actually ask somebody to spend the rest of their life with you yeah, and to, and to make that a very public dec- declaration of, of your love and your commitment. And it, uh, mm. I, it's, it, you do feel nervous about that. At least I did. Yeah. And, um, and, but that day, on that bridge, which maybe has some symbolism, um, I felt, you know, I just got to take the first step. I got to just, you know, and because the play has started, the music is going. It's, it's, you're, this is my moment. I got to make my entrance. And all I had to do was, you know, ask the question. And then lo and behold, it all kind of took care of itself. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you start this really nice partnership. And of course, you know, we're not married yet, so we're still in this kind of, which I actually was talking to her. I think it's an interesting period of time when you are engaged, but not yet married. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there is something, you know, people are very excited about it. People like, you know, oh, that you're engaged, your fiance. There is this kind of, uh, which maybe is more than once you get, after you get married and, you know, it's just like, oh, they're just married. You know, yeah, there's, yeah, there's kind of sure. an excitement and, and you are, you know, you're planning your wedding, you're, you're, there's all this energy going into building your, your, your marriage, you know? And so, uh, it's a really interesting time and, and a very, I, I've been sort of surprised by it and, mm. and, and really into it. Mm. And it's very comforting to have somebody that you're going to kind of, you know, team up with and, uh, and be together and, and ride this crazy road with, you know? Beautifully said. Congratulations. Thanks, buddy. Um, do you want to read this piece? Love to. So um, Noah's going to read this really great piece that I found in the uh, Best American Essays from 2014. Um, some great writers in here. And it's th- I think it's the very first story in the collection, which I think is, is, uh, is there on purpose. Um, it's written by Timothy Aubrey, who is a professor 
um, at Brew College in New York. He's an English professor. And he wrote this piece for Point Magazine. And you can find it online at uh, thepointmag.com. Uh, and then uh, the Best American Essays picked it up from Point, The Point Magazine. Um, he's also the author of Reading as Therapy, What Contemporary Fiction Does for Middle-Class Americans. And he's had essays uh, in N Plus One, The Point, Paper Monument, and Millions. Um, thanks, Timothy, for uh, giving me the okay to read this. Um, all right, take it away. A Matter of Life and Death, from The Point, by Timothy Aubrey. Now you become my boredom and my failure, another way of suffering, a risk. Philip Larkin. Often at night, I dream that I've found some dangerous object lying on the floor and swallowed it. I sit up, coughing violently, trying to force it back out. I turn to my wife and tell her that I've ingested something potentially fatal, and what should I do? If she wakes up grouchy, she snaps, Be quiet! I'm trying to sleep. Startled, I recover myself, realize it's just the same nightmare I always have, and feel acutely embarrassed, hoping my wife won't remember the interruption the next morning. Other times she rubs my arm and says gently, It's okay. You're fine. You didn't swallow anything. Go back to sleep, babe. The next morning she asked me, How do you even know I'm there? I mean, aren't you dreaming? Why do you have to get me involved? Being left alone in my room in the dark used to be the scariest part of my life. I've been having night terrors as long as I can remember. At a pretty young age, I figured out that monsters hiding under the bed or even regular human intruders did not pose the greatest threat to my existence. And having seen a few too many episodes of Michael Landon's Highway to Heaven about an angel who tends to the needs of dying children, I directed my fears at a more likely possibility, disease. And more specifically, cancer. One time, when I was around eight, I had a violent flu. And the whole time, my older sister kept giving me significant looks, like she wanted to tell me something. Though I was pretty out of it, I couldn't help but notice. And I became convinced that this was it. Dr. Elisaphan had already delivered the news to my family. I had cancer. I was dying. My sister knew, but she didn't want to tell me. And I was just going to have to accept it. Eventually, I discovered why she'd been giving me all those concerned stares. A couple nights before, my father, apparently, had gotten in very late. Still awake, my mother had said, I don't expect you to come home for me anymore, but when your son is running 103-degree fever, you might think about leaving the bar before 2 a.m., to which he had responded, If you knew where I actually was tonight, then you'd be really mad. And thus it turned out, that the big secret responsible for my sister's displays of anxiety was not cancer, but divorce. My mom had decided to wait until I was feeling better to tell me. I wasn't dying, but my parents were splitting up. Life and death, marriage and divorce. Ever since then, they've been all mixed up in my head, each one at times standing in for one of the others. The problem with marriage, we all know, is the endlessness of it. Plenty of things we do will have long-term repercussions. But in what other situation do you promise to do something for the rest of your life? Not when you choose a college. Not when you take a job. Not when you buy a house. During childhood, you pick up many habits that are probably going to be lifelong, like walking, talking, reading, and sleeping. 
But once you've got those down, you start to feel like you're at greater liberty to decide what things you want to do and what things you want to stop doing. Especially when you're a young adult. The apparently infinite multiplicity of possible choices, possible jobs, possible friends, possible cities, possible girlfriends or boyfriends can sometimes fool you into thinking you have an infinite amount of time to try out everything. But once you're married, you've significantly cut down the options, and it suddenly makes your life feel shorter. Like now there's a direct line between you and your own death. You've just gotten on a train, and you won't get off until the very end of the track. In your final moments, if you stick to your promise, you'll still be doing the same thing you're doing now, dealing with the same person, possibly having the same arguments. And that commonality between now and then makes that far-off time when you're old and sick and about to die a little more imaginable, which is scary. Apparently, even my father didn't quite escape this predicament. Although they were no longer married, my mother was still there with him in the hospital on the day he died of lung cancer at age 60. And she even managed to subject him to one of their old familiar rituals, though he wasn't exactly in a condition to notice. Apparently, after the nurse declared him dead and shepherded me, my sister, and my two aunts out into another room, while we were all hugging and crying, my mother stayed in the room with my father's body in order to give him a final piece of her mind. How could you? She asked him. How could you take such bad care of yourself and abandon your two kids like this? My parents had been divorced for over 15 years, and my father was dead. But my mother wanted to get in one last good fight. I was stunned when my mother told me afterward what she had just done. You had to have some pretty strong feelings, after all, to stand there yelling at a corpse— did my mother still love my father? Perhaps. But I also think his death had taken something important from her, something distinct from love that marriage offers to us all. Watching her two kids collapse into sobs, she'd looked at their faces and thought about how they'd have to spend the rest of their lives fatherless, with one less person really looking out for them. Though they were both technically adults, one pregnant with her first child, they'd seemed to her especially vulnerable and helpless and she wanted someone to blame. The causes of their distress were too big to comprehend and pretty much beyond anyone's control, disease, aging, and death. So my dad, who could at least have tried to quit smoking, represented a much more tangible and more satisfying target for her grievances. Marriage gives you someone to blame for just about everything. Before you get married, when you feel depressed, you think to yourself, is this it? And by it, you mean life. Is this all life has to offer? Just one day followed by another, the same dreary routine, etc.? But after you get married, you think to yourself, is this it? And by it, you mean marriage. If your life feels monotonous, devoid of possibilities, static, two-dimensional, whatever, you don't blame your life, you blame your marriage. As a thing that's supposed to fill up your days until you die, your marriage becomes like an emblem of your life, like a kind of plastic insulation that's pressed all the way up against the very borders of your existence. It's much easier to blame the stuff lining the walls than the room itself. And there is, you sometimes remind yourself, just a little space between the lining and the outer boundaries, and thus 
it allows you to trick yourself into thinking if you could just get into that space between where your marriage ends and your life continues, or if you could somehow tear down the plastic, escape the confines of your marriage, life would suddenly be vibrant and rich and unexpected and mysterious again. So maybe the greatest gift marriage gives us is the chance to fantasize, to imagine that there's more to life than there actually is, And it accomplishes this by assuming responsibility for all the misery and dullness that we would otherwise equate with life itself. But it's not actually marriage that does this. It's your spouse. One saintly individual steps forward and volunteers to be the fall guy, to absorb the entirety of your existential bitterness for decades to come. So that you can think life isn't quite as bad as you once feared, since everything that's wrong with it is actually your spouse's fault. Even if you don't ever act on your feelings, from this point forward, you can believe that you don't have to die in order to escape from the dreary reality which you sometimes feel trapped. You can just get divorced. Your marriage partner, in other words, allows you to hold on to your hope. It's a profound gesture of total, thankless altruism. If you think about it, but you don't think about it, because by virtue of the particular service they're providing, you're too busy feeling resentful to feel the appropriate gratitude. Much to her chagrin, and at the cost of her own hopes of sleeping soundly through the night, my wife's presence intrudes all the way into my private nightmares. Even when I should be getting away from everything that's troubling or annoying me, into some otherworldly place where I can forget who I am and what I believe my life has become, my wife is still somehow there. And not just in imagined version, but the actual physical person, right at the threshold of my bad dream, ready to pull me back into the room, either kindly or cruelly, so I can think as I regain my sense of reality and watch her as she tries to get back to sleep. Thanks to you, I'm no longer afraid. I thought I had eaten something deadly, but I was wrong. What a relief to realize that you're still here. I'm not dead, and we're going to be together like this for as long as I can imagine. It's Act 3. Hey. And uh, hey, Sam. Uh, hey, thank you, Noah Bean, for being here. Um, it's baseball season. And Officially. I love baseball. It's such a great game. It's my favorite of all the games. Mm-hmm. And I think because it's slow. Yeah. Because it's okay to get bored. Mm-hmm. It takes time. There, and there are breaks. And there's a lot more, um, how do I word this? There's a lot more time, if you're not familiar with it, to explain what's going on. As opposed to, like, if you're not a football fan and you go see a game, yeah. there can be a lot at once. Or if you're not a fan of any sport and you know the game, baseball's slow enough that you can in real time go, yeah. all right, his job is this. Yeah. He wants this to happen. Yeah. And, like, you can literally explain, like, this guy doesn't like this guy. We right. used to have him and trade them. I also love the it's because it's so symmetrical. It's a game of threes and nines, and it's, uh, it's all about math. Did you have a thing with the number three? Was that you? No. I'm thinking of someone else. No. Hmm. Okay. Huh. But I like the number three. Okay. Um, and there's something about uh, the the history and the tradition and the statistics 
that I like. Yeah. The, the, it's the biggest stat-driven sport. Well, I grew up in Milwaukee, so my first and foremost concern is uh, it is the heaviest drinking. Yeah. During game drinking. Mm. Uh, the tailgating at the Dodgers Stadium is a little weaker than what I'm used to. Yeah. Less less people shotgunning beers in the parking lot. Yeah. Grilling brats, but still up there. I think it's, it's slowed down after um, a Dodger fan uh, almost killed. Uh, yeah, once you guys beat that guy almost yeah. to death, the yeah. on uh, on ground drinking has yeah, gone cops, down substantially. Cops show up, mm-hmm. uh, but it's baseball season. It's happening this Sunday, I believe. It all starts. That's when it kicks off. Are you going to go to any games this year? You're uh, a Brewers. Fan. Yeah, I'll catch. I'll catch when uh, Brewers come to town. Robin Yount still on the team. Uh, BB King replaced him. Harmon Killebrew? Yep. They're all. Paul Molitor. Uh, Paul Mooney. Don't plays know who for that them is. now. Famous okay. black comedian. Oh, great. Um, uh, yeah, I'll catch them when they come. And if they're winning, I will, in a very cocky way, talk, sure. talk trash. You and should. If we're losing, yeah. uh, the Brewer hat looks close enough to a Dodgers uh, hat. It's a great hat. That I can, I can hide. That was my very first game. I saw the Red Sox play the Milwaukee Brewers when the Brewers were um, an American League team. And they played at Old County Stadium uh, yeah. in Milwaukee, but I saw it in Boston, and I loved. I it was you know their their uh, their old logo was like a glove. The, oh, it, make, it, which, an, it makes an M and a B. And I didn't know until that game. I was looking at this up at the, the big board, the like white and black you know scoreboard with my dad, and he said, "Do you see the M and B in the?" Uh, and I was like, "No, I, was, I just see a glove." He's like, "No, it's the M M Milwaukee B for Brewers." I never, never, never noticed that. Have you seen their original logo, like way old '30s or yeah. whatever logo? Uh, it's just a big drunk guy swinging a baseball bat. Yeah, big fat wearing guy. a barrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is the real anti Polish Milwaukee. But yeah, pretty accurate. Big drunk dummy. We'll take it. Yeah, he's on the team. Yeah, uh, I went to a game there at their new stadium where they have Bernie the Brewer. It's mm-hmm. their mascot, and when someone hits a home run, he slides down a slide. <laughs> yeah, if you um, if you live in Milwaukee and you're listening to this, if you go to the River West Brewery mm. on the lakefront, they have Bernie's old slide. Oh wow! Uh, they also have old slide. Uh, yeah. They had his original. It's oh, replaced. from County Stadium, the yeah. old one. Uh, I don't Whoa. think you can slide down it. You can if they leave the room, and they don't think it's funny at all if you oh, do. Oh, I bet. But they have it there, and they also have uh, the conveyor belt from Laverne and Shirley. Oh, the yeah. The opening. Well, the glove comes yeah, down. exactly. Um, anyway, I thought I'd celebrate. Last year, I read this big, long piece that John Updike wrote about Ted Williams. I'm going to re- re- read a shorter piece for this one. Um Ernest Lawrence Thayer wrote maybe the most famous poem about baseball in the history of the world. It's called Casey at the Bat. Everyone knows Casey at the Bat, right? Of course. Uh, So I'm going to read that. All right, here we go. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning more to play. And that when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought, if only Casey could but get a whack at that, we'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a hoodoo, while the latter was a cake. 
So upon that stricken multitude grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single, to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted, and men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a hugging third. Then from five thousand throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell. It pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat, for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing, and a smile lit Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt, twas Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him. As he rubbed his hands with dirt, five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance flashed in Casey's eye, a sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped, That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone on the stand. And it's likely they'd have killed him, had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the dun sphere flew. But Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two! Fraud! cried the maddening thousands, and Echo answered, Fraud! But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright, the band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts alight, and somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. Today's show is sponsored by Howl FM. It's like Netflix for podcasts. With Howl Premium, you get exclusive access to a brand new Howl original comedy series, The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium, starring Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. You can get it right now with Howl Premium. It's Come on. I mean, he's one of the greats, right? It sounds like no other podcast you've ever heard. Rich, detailed sound design and original music produced by an outstanding creative team all the way from New Zealand. It's a show to check out immediately. But also, 
Not only do you have Jermaine's show, you have 120 hours of new Howl original miniseries and audio documentaries uh, from the Scar Brothers, um, Fruit, The Complete Woman, also 80 comedy albums, and all the archives for WTF, and all your favorite Earwolf shows like Comedy Bang Bang and How Did This Get Made, uh, I-, I Was There Too, etc. It's all there. $4.99 a month. That's it. And with the promo code READING, you get a free full month of access. So go check it out right now. Howl.fm. Use the promo code READING for one month of a free trial and make it happen so your ears will like you more. Casey at the Bat. It's great. And I enjoyed reading it. Thanks for showing up to another episode of Reading Aloud. And remember, come check us out live at the LA Times Festival of Books at USC on Saturday, April 9th at 4 p.m. We're doing a live podcast. I'm setting up guests now. It's going to be real fun. So make sure you get down. It's free, totally free. Uh, So take the train, take the car, take the mule. However you can get down to USC, make it happen. And uh, enormous thanks to my guest today, Noah Bean. Thank you so much for coming in, pal. Uh, I love him dearly. And to Tim Aubrey for giving us the rights to read his, uh, his essay that I found in the Best American Essays. Um, and uh, to the guy who wrote Casey at the Bat. He's now dead, but I appreciate his ghost allowing me to read Casey at the Bat. Um, my name is Nate Cordry. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Ring Aloud. We'll be back in two weeks with the book club. So check it out. Sylvia Plath, the, the, the gel bar, mm-hmm. the bar gel, the bar gel. It's about those jelly shoes. The bell jar. It's a classic. Pick it up at your local bookstore. Read it. Email us at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you then. Okay. Love you, Nate. All right. I love you too, Sam. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. What is the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium? Nettled spaghettarium nocturnum. The night spaghetti. It looks like spaghetti. Yes, but specifically when you eat it at night. Why none other than the biggest, boldest Howl original show yet. I've seen a crab with seven legs. Starring Jermaine Clement in a truly original fantasy adventure. Oh, what's that awful smell, Solita? That's the sea air, sir. Ooh. Experience the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium today, only on Howl. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.